there. You're listening to the Steve Fun Speak On It podcast. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by our hosts and guest panelists are their own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the Steve Fund. Before we begin our conversation, it is important to note that the information shared on this podcast cannot and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with a health or mental health care professional. If you or a loved one need help, please reach out to a health or mental health provider or the Steve Fund Crisis Text Line, which you can access by texting Steve to 741-741. Thank you and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Speak On at Season 2, Secrets of Wellbeing. In today's episode, we will be discussing intellectual well-being and how to be a lifelong learner. Joining us today is Dr. Chris Rose. Uh, Chris is a professor of engineering and associate provost at Brown University. He has to receive the 2022 Undergraduate Teaching Award from the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers for his innovating teaching and support for students. Thank you for being here today, Chris. Thanks for having me. Rosebud and thorn, a rose is something beautiful, a thorn is a pain and a bud is something you're looking forward to. I can start off with a thorn. I mean, with uh, as administrators and as, you know, college people, we're dealing with uh, COVID, have been dealing with COVID for the past, uh, you know, couple, almost a couple of years now. So, um, you know, we've had a spike in the undergraduate um, COVID uh, positivity rate and you know this is not this is not unexpected you know as you bring everybody back to campus so we're trying to deal with that so it's a little bit of a thorn I don't want to think I don't want to overblow it but we're watching it really closely and uh, hopefully we can resolve it and uh, in terms of the uh, I don't know whether there are three things but the rose bud I'll do a rose bud uh, that I'm happy and uh, hopeful about uh, I'm Brown has this wraparound advising system, which is uh, unique in my experience. So there's, I have six frosh that are assigned to me and you know, I make sure that they go through their paces, you know, select courses, but also I'm there to make sure that everything is going well. And I have a wonderful new set of frosh. This happens every year, but you know, these guys are raring to go and um, they're, they're just a happy bunch. And I'm really hopeful that they're going to uh, do well despite, you know, these are challenges. This is not uh, you guys, uh, and, and, you know, as college students, you guys are really in the lurch here. <laughs> I mean, you, you had a whole year where you weren't at college. That's, so that's not the college experience. And now you're kind of uh, all the socialization, which is what college is all about, is really been kind of put on lockdown. So you gotta be really careful. So, uh, but yet and still, I'm really hopeful about what's gonna happen, modulo the thorn of, the increased COVID cases. In terms of your the wraparound advising, so does that mean that they also have an academic advisor and then are matched with like a faculty member to help advise them? There's the general advising system of deans that take care of things that are uh, maybe a little bit above and beyond. Then there's two advisors. There's me as a faculty advisor, you know, the old head that can, you know, rumble and say, uh, you know, calming sort of things but not really uh, help them with what button to push. And then there's this thing called a Mickeljohn, which is a sophomore or junior who uh, wants to advise other students. So together, we kind of get all up in the student stuff uh, is the point. So, you know, as the old guy, I can look and see problems developing um, early. And it's not just the academic sort of stuff. I make it a point to meet with everybody face-to-face -face or <laughs> Zoom-to-Zoom as it had mostly been in the past year, but we're now back to face-to-face. -to -face. So that's really, um, the core of it is the faculty advisement and this undergraduate advisor. And we are a team, uh, Gideon and I this year, are a team to help the Frosh move through the system. So that's, uh, that's a new thing for me. My thorn for this week, um, kind of similar related to like what Chris was sharing uh, is tied to COVID. Um, I'm here in Houston. So like we had the hurricane come through or supposedly come through and as a result of which um, it was like just a lot of staying at home and trying to stay productive. Um, but I don't know if uh, other people are facing this, but I'm kind of getting into a fatigue state of like, I can't work at home much longer without being too focused or like 
coming in and out of focus. So like I've been really relying on like being able to go to coffee shops, of course, and with like my mask on and everything, um, just to be able to have that stimulation while also studying and um, whatnot. So yeah, social, just, right? I mean, yeah. it's all about the social. Uh, you know, you you could uh, we could do this remotely. You could get the content remotely. That's not what college is about. So definitely, it's definitely about the networking and just being able to make friends beyond everything else. But yeah, I think my rose for this week, however, is that uh, some of my readings, um, I'm taking a working in diverse communities class uh, currently, and we're currently talking about racism and the intersections regarding healthcare, um, regarding that. And I think a lot of it has been resonating it with me because we're uh, discussing uh racism outside of the white black construct and adding in other races like Asian Americans, indigenous populations, and just the overall general history within the states and why, you know, like certain racial groups have uh, hesitancies trusting certain systems. Um, And it's just been very um, affinity driven and just like really um, helping me like um, stay stabilized and centered and grounded in this work. I thought of my thorn, I guess it it would be like the some of the social drawbacks of just COVID-19 safety precautions. Like some small events have already been canceled, but my bud will be getting to have some in-person meetings, like meetings where last year the whole thing was on Zoom. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and the Rose is just like having socials and things like that coming up, like rooftop events or things outside that we can have pretty safely. So I guess that would be my Rose. So thank you everyone for sharing your roses, buds, and thorns for this week. Let's go ahead and define intellectual well-being. As described by the National Wellness Institute, intellectual well-being can be described as how one remains creative and engages in mental stimulating activities throughout their life. It is also how one expands their knowledge and skills while also discovering the potential for sharing their gifts with others. Southeastern Oklahoma State University's Student Wellness Center also highlights that intellectual health isn't just about academic knowledge, but also entails creativity, general knowledge, and common sense. Definitions are definitions are definitions. Um, what I've seen, I've been in academe, goodness, for a long time now. When did I start? 1990. So 31 years. How did that happen? Uh, and I've uh, taught at different academic institutions. As a graduate student, I tutored, you know, so I've been in the teaching end of things and interacting with students and helping folks learn. And, uh, and my whole, and being a professor is all about generating new knowledge. And all I can say there is that, and maybe reiterate something that uh, you know I've said in the past, that nothing really good happens in a vacuum, right? And the whole mental well-being business is really, it's not just about you being happy, sitting in your chair, you know, meditating. It is a social enterprise. We are social creatures and it's a social enterprise. So gathering and gaining knowledge in your college experiences, say, or in your first work experience and throughout your life, that's one thing. But it really is the social interactions that float everybody's boats um, and should float everybody's boats. It provides cohesion. It provides outlets. It provides different ways of looking at things. So, you know, each little piece, I, I don't want to go back and dissect the definition and say, you know, and, and, and parse it like a, like a sentence, you know, you do in a grammar class. But the piece parts of creativity, connectivity, lifelong learning, um, I'm working on things right now, just before we got on this call, I'm playing with something to, uh, that nobody's ever done before. And maybe nobody will care about but me, but I'm gonna put it together, show it to colleagues, we'll bounce it back and forth and we'll have fun with it. So I'd say that that sort of basic outlook is really important at all stages of your development. So no isolation, you know, you should be around people. Um, you should gain your knowledge. I mean, there are sometimes that you gotta be by yourself to consolidate things, but it really is, I guess the punchline of all of this for me, again, not being a mental health professional, I'm just a lowly, you know, engineering professor, is that everything that we do is a social enterprise. Even what I do is a social enterprise with all the math and stuff, because if I just do it and nobody reads it and nobody takes it to another level, what's the point? 
I completely agree. I think we've always known that we needed like individual time to like work on things and study things um, and really learn them deeply for ourselves. And then other times, like we need someone to be able to bounce that information off of to really like, I guess, solidify it in our minds. And I think nowadays, like we just understand even more how much we need social interactions. Human beings are social creatures and therefore we help to emotionally regulate each other's emotional systems in a way. Like the like even just saying something to someone can just completely change how they feel. And so another human being is like probably one of the most powerful like emotional catalysts for another human being or something. So I think um, we definitely operate. I think I think we're definitely better together than apart. So I think that's something really important to remember and just like finding ways to do that with technology. Like we are able to definitely transfer that content from the classroom, like to wherever people are in the world. But can we really like get that connection across or like if we need to use technology more now to achieve learning goals, like we also need to keep in mind, like how are we going to keep like the social aspect of the classroom strong? And I think some of my professors have been like really thinking about that and working hard on making that possible. Um, so that way nothing really disrupts our learning, although it's definitely hard to to achieve that. But I think people are definitely working towards that. And I think that's just important to keep in mind nowadays. Yeah, I'd say what's interesting there, and Ajay, if I cut across you, please, you know, just uh, to pull out the newspaper and swat me. Uh, but I guess what one of the things, on being on the delivery end of this, so, you know, I've had to teach courses over Zoom. What I can say, however, even to, it's, it's, not, it's not optimal, but Zoom with actually having faces there has been a godsend. Uh, without that, uh, we would have lost, we would have literally lost a year or would have had a lot more sick people uh, and possibly deaths, uh, even among the young and uh, vigorous. So, you know, everything, what you said, Danny, the lead in, I guess, was that uh, we're social creatures and we regulate each other and you got to have that peace part of it. But one thing that I will say is that, so we had a faculty meeting, an actual in-person faculty meeting, you know, it was just so wonderful to see everybody. But here's the interesting thing. Having been in Zoom meetings with everybody, it was not quite as weird as coming back after a year and a half after not having seen anybody and maybe only talked on the phone. So, you know, segueing to your technology piece, maybe there are things that we can do that can make it, uh, you know, a little bit better. So right now I'm watching Jay, not you, because your video's off. And there are, you know, visual cues, there are oral cues. Uh, and what you, another thing that you said that really resonated is that one, one happy thing or one off thing can really set your day off in a different sort of direction. And that really underlined, and I think we've all experienced that, you know, having one little silly thing or one little happy thing that just has you smiling or frowning for the rest of the day. We are powerful influencers of each other. So, you know, we haven't talked about good community. We've just, I've just said, we've got to have community, but there's good and bad uh, to the community aspects. And we all got to be aware of those. I love the, so like to kind of resonate with Danny before going uh, into what you were saying, Chris. Um, I really do think that like the whole Zoom or virtual aspect of it has been helping with the connection piece and at least with the social interactions. I would be curious to see what happens when everything does transfer back to like full physical like interactions, because I feel like there will be ways that people will interact where social cues aren't like they kind of forgot or like they haven't been used in a while. <laughs> so it might be like a little awkward for a little bit. There'll be a little learning curve when people start interacting back in person again. And well, I touching. Jay, touching, yes, right? I mean, yeah. I'm a hugger. I'll, you know, put, and I, you know, we can't do that yet. And it's going to be a little weird. So I agree. Yeah. And then, um, and then following in terms of the like educational portion of it, I found that like some professors, uh, they will, uh, you know, like they do their best with the virtual aspects of it and add like voice threads and the PowerPoints and et cetera. But there are also the things of like being able to like stay after class after a little bit and be like, hey, Dr. Rose, like I had a question regarding this. Like I was a little anxious to be able to tell it to like the 50 plus other students in the classroom and say it out loud because I didn't want to look um, silly or maybe it was like a dumb question and I didn't want to perceive it like that. So like kind of making room for that virtually has been a bit difficult. 
um, in my opinion. And then with what Chris was saying regarding the, oh shoot, completely forgot what you like left off, Chris. I, was, like, I, I thought I was riffing on what Danny was saying, that it's community and that there's the pluses and minuses to, uh, you know, things that can push you in different directions. So there's the, the, there's the kind word and then there's the snipe that can completely change your day. We're strongly, uh, we're strongly a social community. So we got to be aware of that. That was the big takeaway. Oh, yes. I was going to mention the, um, like, going into the, like, the good community and the bad community aspect of it, where it's like, you know, like, certain community members will boost up your, like, desire to, like, branch out and, and to discover and explore a bit more, whereas, like, others may kind of put you down and make you a little more tentative to doing so. So I think that's really important to consider. Um, so I guess to kind of like circle around back to like BIPOC experiences and for those that are listening who aren't familiar with the term BIPOC, it stands for Black, Indigenous, People, Color. Um, what are some of y'all's experiences or experiences that you've heard or seen um, as related to intellectual well-being with like BIPOC um, students, I guess? So I'll, I'll start off with, the, since I'm the dinosaur. Um, you know, and uh, I'll start off with the dinosaur stories. So when my sister and I were very young, um, we grew up, we both grew up in Harlem, in New York, New York City. Um, and our parents were very much about education. So, but they knew that because we were black kids, even in New York, which is, you know, a liberated Northern city, there would be questions. So they went and had us tested at uh, Columbia University. They had a uh, testing service for uh, kids. So they had us tested and you know, the results came back you know, decent. And what the, and I'll never forget this. My mother told me this when I was an adult. What the tester said, and if this was a liberal, you know, forward-thinking sort of individual said, don't get their hopes up because the way, of the way society is. Um, so, you know, Trisha and I are now professors, both at Brown. Um, oddly enough, we both ended up here in the by and by. And, you know, that sort of thing, that, that's a strong indicator. So what this person was saying, and they weren't an evil, mean sort of person. They were incorporating what they saw about society and trying to prevent harm to us as little children. So now think about expanding that out where in all your interactions, um, coming up through school, I had one black teacher um, throughout my whole, excuse me, two, throughout my whole, and one black male, throughout my whole college experience and, and uh, sc school days experience. So what does that say about, you know, the, the, the sorts of pressures that society or the sorts of messages that society is sending you? So those are the terrible, so that's the, that's the terrible part of things. And I love you, actually the thorn and the rosebud thing is really good here. Now, what BIPOC people have classically done, and I'll speak for black and Latinx, because since that was my milieu coming up, we banded together for warmth. We understood that uh, at least in these academic environments, there were things that were not expected, that were expected of us, but not expected of us. We were not expected to succeed. And basically we said rats to that. And I usually use more colorful language, but I'm not gonna. Um, and there was a cohesion. Remember this was, uh, so this was in the sixties when we were, uh, when my sister and I were young. In 1968, I was admitted to, after pushing and you know, from my parents looking around for stuff to a prep school. And that was 1968, which was a momentous time, at least as momentous as the past year and a half have been for BIPOC people in terms of things that have happened. So that cohesion made for groups. I know most of those people from that time and through my college years now. So I guess what I'm adding to, putting to that is that there's the negative social things that happened, but then on top of that, what people do because we form community and support each other is pulled together and we were on a mission, essentially. So there was, a, there was a slight generation that came before me and I went to MIT 
that came before me, Shirley Jackson, who's the current president of RPI. They put in place structures that helped us. We put in place structures that helped the next students. And that's how we dealt with it. Um, and it's funny, but I, my wife and I, my wife is at Harvard, uh, Danny's aunt, Stephanie, we almost feel like we went to HBCUs because we had such a strong BIPOC community. And those are the people that we know to this day. <clears throat> so this may not fit exactly into what it was, but I did want to you know, put the dinosaur in there saying that today it's a lot less obvious. People are, I mean, I had to, there were people, I had friends who uh, in college, professors said essentially, not essentially, explicitly, you shouldn't take this course. You're not ready. You shouldn't be here. Uh, because they are a black person. Yet it's rare you're going to get exactly that these days. It's not, not impossible. You know, I'm, I'm sure it happens, but it's not as professors don't feel as comfortable showing their racism uh, that way. But it's maybe almost worse because it's remember all these little, you talked about the little, um, the, the, Danny, you talked about the little things that happen to people that uh, can change the way their days go. It's a lot right. more subtle, right, Danny? Yeah, it could come out that, I wasn't even thinking of that, but yeah, it could come out as like microaggressions. Like, I don't think professors would necessarily be that comfortable being racist, but this has nothing to do with intellectual wellness, but I don't know, I, I can just say I, this, I, we I, can take it out later. I but. don't know, I think it does have everything to do with intellectual wellness. Um, I know, now look, there's this image of the tortured artist you know, you, you or, or the, you, know, you crush the coal and eventually it becomes a diamond, uh, you know, so you have to have pain to be really creative. I don't buy that at all. I think, no, that, no I think that having, so look, we're all going to have our, you can't go through life without having some ups and downs. That's what life is about, right? But being happy about things and having that spirit that Things are going to get, even if things are bad now, they're going to get better and, and you're going to be an agent in making it getting better. And you're going to have people around you that you can operate with and be agents in making things get better. I think creativity really springs from that process. I feel I am much more creative when I'm a happier person than when I'm a bummed out person. And I think that these constant messages of you can't, you can't, you can't either overt, excuse me, overt turns on the orneriness in people. And that might not be a bad thing. If uh, again, witnessing my experience in the late sixties and seventies through eighties in, co in college and graduate school, where you band together and do something, the subtle things where it's almost like a breeze, you don't really know it's there, but it's there, um, can be so damaging to your intellectual well-being. Um, it, 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 I mean, when I think about intellectual well-being, I think of, you know, somebody that just you're exploring, a, you're exploring an area, you're running around looking at this, looking at this flower, oh, there's a mountain over there, let's go over here. With these various um, headwinds, I'll call them, it may choose what you decide to do and what not to do. I, you know, know students that because of the environment in a hot, in a particularly hot area, meaning that it will get the gain of employment, it's intellectually stimulating and interesting, but the social element of it pushes them away from the area, even though they're perfectly capable of excelling or dominating a field. So I think that all of these things really do come back to the intellectual wellness theme of, you know, what we're talking about here. Not to, not to be an old angry uncle, Danny, you know, it's just, uh, you know, as I said, I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> I would resonate with a lot, actually, all of what you were saying, Chris. I like I was taking notes on what you were saying, and um, the earlier portions in terms of um, that professor from Columbia or whatnot, or researcher, like telling your like mother that like I want to get their hopes up, um, kind of made me think of like uh, my teacher is current. My teacher, my cousin is currently a teacher, and uh, she shared experiences where. Um, currently with the increased rate of standardized testing for elementary school students, um, there are conversations where um, predominantly Black and Latinx kids um, may not be at certain standardized levels for their grade levels, but instead of wanting to 
work with those students, realize the socioeconomic reasons and environmental pressures and maybe why they're not studying or can't study as much as like other students. Uh, these teachers are like, I don't want to deal with it. We're just going to go ahead and pass them off to the next grade. And unfortunately, it creates kind of like a cycle where the students are not in a situation where they can learn properly because like other students would deemed more um, advanced than they are. And as a result of which it can also impact efficacy, self-esteem, and eventually the desire to be intellectually well in terms of wanting to continue to learn. And then going back to what you were saying about the hotspots with careers, it also kind of creates a situation where students are like, I can never do that because I've, been consistently told that I'm like not as smart or intelligent or like I'm not able to do so and although I agree that some pressure at times motivates some people to be like you know what I'm gonna throw this back at your face and like prove you wrong but that also depends on luck circumstances for them to be able to do so (laughs) and I think uh it's like a huge part in terms of like uh, intellectual well-being, but also plays into uh, mental well-being in terms of like, how do I process this? How do I see myself in the world where already there are so many isms and hatreds going on in addition to how do I um, make myself secure in the future and like with finances and other things that we depend on to be able to live lives as we grow older. Yeah. Yeah. Danny, we've talked about this actually, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I think full disclosure, Danny's my, my wonder niece and um, my claim to fame is taking Danny. I don't have any daughters. So, you know, I, I, I have three sons and I got to take Danny to a father daughter dance. Um, so it ended up being an uncle daughter dance. Uh, so that was my, you know, so that's my, that's my claim to fame, having taken Danny to a father daughter dance as the uncle, but we've talked but you know, because we're family, we've talked about these sorts of things and what you said, Jay really, you know, is like a javelin right into the middle of this thing. There is the issue of sometimes the pressure and sometimes the antagonism makes for melding of community and pushing forward, but you don't want to build policy on the outlier, right? What ends up happening is that you got this, and if you, and this is true, I believe, in the Black community, it was very cohesive socioeconomically in the 50s and 60s, and there was progress being made. But now we've got this tremendous divide between, even among Blacks, between the haves and the haves not. Now, the Blacks have nothing, you know, relative to white folk, but even within the Black community, there's this great divide. And what majority policymakers do, they'll point to successes and say, oh, look at that person, they succeeded. Oh, look at that person, they succeeded. And that's bullhock. Uh, it's you can't design policy on the outliers because you what you what you're ignoring is the experience and the lived experience and the actual damage being done to a whole bunch of other folks. One other thing that I'll riff on in what you said, there's this issue of skills versus smarts. I'll, I'll put it that way, and, I, and this is completely again. I'm not I'm not a uh, I'm an education professional, meaning what that means is that they allow me to do this and not kill people over the past, you know, 30 odd years, but I was never trained professionally. But what I'll say is there's smarts and there's skill. Smart folks can pick up the skills. Okay. And, but then let's say, you know, ability, you got all these layers on top of things. You can't, you can't up and sorry, your living situation is such that, uh, you know, you can't actually spend the quiet alone time to cement the skills. There are all of these headwinds that combine to disproportionately affect BIPOC folk. So what I guess, you know, I'll I'll wrap that up if I can, uh, you know, right there, is that these pressure is great for some things. If, If everything's too easy, then, you know, then you just won't... I think we're human. We just don't want to do it. If it's too easy, you just don't do it. You want to do something that's kind of challenging and interesting. But there's, if you look at it at the grand scheme of things, especially if the pressures are faint, you can't really see them. Now, what you described, by the way, Jay, was uh, pretty overt, uh, made my blood boil. Um, and you know, I don't know what we can do about those things. But 
for the non-overt things that you often experience at these elite schools like you're at, you know, it has an effect is what I'm going to, is what I want to try to say. And I would try not to minimize that. So, you know, Danny, you know, you and your dad and, you know, all of us, we sat around the table and talked about these things. A little bit of a burr in the saddle is kind of a good thing, but if it's a constant state of affairs, that's a bad, to me, that's a bad thing. And again, this disclaimer, I am not a mental health, like on TV, I am not, I'm not a doctor in real life, you know, so I'm, I'm not a mental health professional. So sorry to uh, go on and on and on. I'll stop now. Oh, I, before I like continue, Dana, do you have anything to add? Not really. Um, yeah, no. Well, actually, I do have a question. Um, so Uncle Chris, you're in engineering. I was wondering, are there any situations that you can think of where it's like really specific to that field, like um, students of color not feeling like they can go into that area of study due to like microaggressions or other things that might happen during their oh, um, yes. upper education? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I mean, engineering has been, uh, you know, that it's, it, it is exactly one of those things. There was this uh, wonderful, one of the reasons that I'm here, aside from, um, you know, the, having wanted to, one of my jobs here is to diversify the faculty, uh, specifically in STEM. And that means uh, Black, Latinx, and uh, Indigenous, Native Indigenous uh, folk. And one of the reasons I'm here was this wonderful student, uh, Jamel Watson Daniels. She was in physics. And here's, she, she was almost a statistic in some respects. She wanted to be a physicist. And she was taking the physics courses. Her background wasn't perfect. Uh, so she was just like Jay was saying, there were skills issues that she had to develop. But she was getting all these messages, essentially. Well, you know, and then the messages can be your grades, feedback on exams, interactions with instructors. The whole thing as a melange was telling her, you don't belong here. Now, here's, what, here's the thing, though. What Jamel did was look up. She was, she was perceptive enough to look up and say, wait, this is not about me. This is about you. And she wrote a white paper explaining her experiences and saying, we really need to diversify the faculty. And the administration here took that seriously. So that is, the, that is one of the primary reasons that I am here. So I'd say that in STEM in particular, and I'm, you know, I won't say I'm specifically engineering, just STEM, there's lots of, uh, you know, computer science is the hot thing right now. Uh, there's, there's pressure uh, to, that, that turns people away. It's social, and I'd say it's social pressure. It builds on those skills things, Danny, um, that Jay was talking about, but it ends up being social pressure and folks go into different sorts of areas, even though they could just as easily perhaps revolutionize, uh, let's say computer science or engineering or physics or whatever. So it's very real, but I don't know of any cases where a professor or even another, actually I, I take that back, but a professor, no, of a professor telling a student, you know, you shouldn't be here, but here's an example of something that's a, it's a microaggression, but it speaks completely to how fundamental these things are. I had a student who since graduated, this was a crackerjack computer science student. He just loved the stuff. And so he was as a freshman taking this big course, you know, that all the computer science people took. And there was one lecture he came out of and he was just lit up. The material just lit him up. And we've all as academics, as learners had that experience, like, oh my goodness, it's like an epiphany. So he just wanted to talk to somebody. So as he's coming out of the lecture hall, he turns to this young woman, white woman, he's black, and says, wasn't that fantastic what the guy just said? And she turns and looks at him. He's a big, tall guy, turns and looks at him and says, who are you? Are you even in this class? Now think about all the, everything that's packed into that statement, okay? That's the sort of thing that can derail people. Um, you know, she said in that, in those three words, don't talk to me, you're unqualified. I mean, and we could go on and on and on with just what that one single interaction did. And it stuck with me these five years, right? And it'll stick with me for the rest of my life because it's an exemplar 
of how of mental of how your intellectual well-being is tied tied uh, completely to the social environment. I shouldn't say completely. It's greatly affected by the social environment in which you sit. So the, the, that was the long answer to your question. Most definitely. So if you've got folks out there and folks that are listening, that you're saying, mm, you know, I can't point to any one thing that happened, but I don't feel comfortable. Uh, talk to other folk who look like you or who share your, whatever your affinity is. And uh, I think you'll find out that uh, it's not all inside your head. I also want to add in that I love that you're mentioning, uh, thank you for sharing that you were kind of like to help diversify the STEM field like at Brown University. Because uh, I think one of the takeaways or discourses that I've heard like on social media where students are sharing their like lived experiences are uh, more often than not, the uh, BIPOC professors are typically in the cultural centers. Um, they're not typically teaching like other like STEM or other like liberal arts like related fields. And it's like, nope, they're just going to be like African-American studies, Asian-American studies, yes. et cetera, et cetera. And that's where they're going to stay. Right. And graduate students. That's the other thing that so, uh, you know, one of the things that you learn in college, as you guys learned, is that there's professors, but then the folks that actually help you learn often are graduate students and postdocs. And so you need to diversify all those ranks. If you, if you don't see yourself there, unless you're, unless you're coming from that 1968 siege mentality where you're going to come through and you're going to be the first and you're going to do, um, which is not a happy thing. I mean, because again, there's a lot of bloodshed uh, that happens along the way, intellectual bloodshed where people get shunted off or don't make, don't make it through. But unless you're going to do that, you need to have role models are essential. And here's another thing. So looking at you two um, and looking at all of my students, everyone in my class, I take the in loco parentis thing seriously, uh, the, meaning the in-place parent. And I can quite literally, and this is maybe a function of uh, BIPOC communities because we tend to, when we take the family photo, we got to make sure it's lit right because there's all sorts of different skin shades and tones and whatever else. So we're used to having lots of different folks intimately within our own families is the point. So when I see kids in my large lecture course, they can each and every one of them from the palest to the darkest could be kin. And I see it that way. And hopefully that comes across. I'm not sure that majority profs feel the same way necessarily. Now, I don't want to say that as a general rule, but I do want to say that I feel that each and every one of those kids could quite literally be my niece, nephew, son, daughter, whatever. So that's another message that gets sent. Who gets invited to the research groups, Danny? Uh, you know, you're talking about engineering and, this, and STEM. Um, you know, it's, it, there are all these little subtle messages that are being sent. And I can see them and I do everything I can to combat them. And, uh, but, you know, I'm one person. So the main thing is to become a force multiplier and get more people who look like the folks on this call, for example, here. And, and just like you said, Jay, not just in Africana studies, but across the board. And my, but my, my particular, uh, I'm trying to conquer the world. My particular area is STEM. So the biological sciences and all the physical sciences. The lifelong learning thing, it, I just never understood it. And I know that sounds uh, blasphemous, but it, just going through life, interesting stuff happens that you want to explain and you want to understand. Now, here's a stupid example. I, uh, I bought a, um, my, my coffee machine broke. So I got a new coffee machine, a Ninja. Then that's not, I, I know no stock in Ninja, so I'm not trying to push Ninja. But what was interesting about this Ninja coffee maker was that it had this little mixer on the side. You press a button and a little thing spins around so you can froth up your coffee. Oh my God, Starbucks just lost my business. Okay. So in doing that, pressing the button on this, what I noticed was when I was mixing the coffee, it would start out with this high pitched whir, and then get down to a kind of a, and I looked at this and I said, I couldn't figure out why. And it's, so why is it, why do I have this high pitch starting out and then it drops down and goes to a low pitch? 
is there some fluid dynamics thing that's happening there? So I tried a different bunch of different things. And that could just be me, but I was just curious. So lived experience. Uh, an example of a professor when I was at MIT, and this was an, and this was this was kind of cute in some respects. This was an old guy. This guy had one foot in the grave, you know. And, and now the funny thing is that he probably wasn't more than ten years older than I am now. So you know, I don't I don't know what that says. But you know, he was an old guy, and we happened to be in the cafeteria line together, and there was this set of plates with that were sitting on ice, and in reaching for something. He tapped this one plate and it began to just spin and it wouldn't stop. So it was sitting on top of the ice and it was just melted. And it was just a weird thing watching it spin around. And we both looked at each other. I don't know why we both looked at each other. And then he spun it a little bit more. And it was in that little thing, just curiosity about the world around you. That's what lifelong learning is about. So the coming around to it, Obviously, I'm a proponent of lifelong learning, but what I'm saying is I don't know how you can't be a proponent of lifelong learning if you're alive. And if you're not, if you end up, you think that you're not learning stuff, you, you may need to think about what it is you're doing because what you're doing may be soul deadening. And that, you know, that takes us in a whole nother different direction. Yeah, I think like my connection to this would be um, ideas from my dad. Uh, so my parents are uh, uh, first-gen immigrants like here to the States and uh, my dad is a like chef and my mom's a waitress and et cetera. Um, but like one of the things that my dad really kind of like hammered into my brother and I and something that my family in general when they immigrated here to the States is like, um, always build your skill sets, always build your knowledge, even if it's not something that you want to do. So for me, I'm interested in healthcare and et cetera, but like my dad was like a huge proponent of like, you know, like you need to learn how to uh, do mechanics and, you know, do like filtration systems and blah, 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 blah. Uh, like these are all common things that you need to be able to do and learn and understand to be able to help you and build your knowledge base because the more you know, the more bargaining chips, I guess is his perspective, the more bargaining chips you have with like other interactions with other people. And I think for him, um, it's just like a way for like my brother and I at least to be able to have a stronger foundation in terms of like holding our own with like talking to others and uh, just experiences in general. Oh, goodness. Uh, Danny, uh, this is another thing that I know we've talked about. Um, you know, your, your audio connection, I think maybe just a little bit shaky, so I don't want to put you on the spot, but setting it off, that is definitely something within the black community in particular, having a base of things now. And so I won't go into more detail because you kind of laid it out, but here's an interesting thing that I found in my areas. If you look at the people that are, um, that managed to run the gauntlet uh, and become researchers, professors, and whatever else, BIPOC folk, but in particular, Black and Latinx folk. They tend to be really creative because they had to. But here's the other thing, and this is really, Jay, what, why, why, what you said stimulated this. What they also have is that they tend to work at the interstices of fields, meaning where the breakthroughs happen, Okay. And there's two reasons I think for this. I have no, and I, you know, you can quote me, but you know, that and five dollars will buy you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. But my my observation, empirical observation, is that remember I said that sometimes you don't that you you sent all sorts of messages not to feel comfortable with the hot thing that everybody is doing. So what that ends up doing, talented people end up going, they they get the message, it's like, I don't want to do this, it's too much pain in the butt. So they do other things, but what they do is gravitate to those things where they can be most effective. And that lives in the space of, Jay, this broad-based sensibility of being able to do multiple things as opposed to just one thing. And I see that, and by the way, I'm using that here and hope to export it to other places as a superpower. I think that BIPOC folk are the ground troops for fantastic innovations that have yet to happen, specifically because we 
tend to live at these interstices um, is the point. So just, just riffing on it. But Danny, that's another thing. I mean, Danny, how many different things do you do? You are the most, you are one of the most diverse intellectually and uh, hobbies and whatever else people I've ever met. And, you know, and I'm, and I'm saying that not just as a family member, but, you know, you really do a lot of different stuff. So, you know, that, this should resonate a lot with you. It definitely does. And I guess, like, like you said, having hobbies, it, it's not necessarily like all of it needs to go into your career or be like what you want to be focused on in school. But I think one of the things we wanted to highlight with this episode is like some things you just do for yourself or just because you enjoy it. And like, I mean, even just hearing you talk about your coffee maker, like having curiosity about the world around you in a less formal way. Like, I think sometimes we forget that we can just do that. Like, I don't know, like, I feel like kids will, will get excited about certain things or, um, or they're like, I, I once heard like everyone's born a scientist and like people, like, they want to make sense of the world around them and they ask why. And it's almost like we teach kids to stop asking why because it's annoying. And then people don't want to go into <laughs> science later because they don't know how to ask why anymore. So. <laughs> oh God. Well, I hope that I have never done that to anybody. Uh, I'm, I, I am the, I, yeah, yeah. I just love, I love what I do. I love interacting with people. I love the light that lights up in students' eyes when you've shown them a concept that maybe they kind of were wondering about or barely knew about, and then they suddenly make the connection. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a lifelong joy and why I guess I do what I do. So, you know, the whole, so to bring that full circle, maybe the whole lifelong learning thing, I, I don't even know how to answer that because uh, I don't know how to live life any other way uh, is the point. And again, if you're not, if you find that you're not curious, that's a sign, just like lack of appetite, lack of uh, interest in uh, various things can be a sign that maybe you need to go talk to somebody and, uh, you know, get therapy or talk to your friends or do whatever. And in the BIPOC community, therapy is a bad word. Uh, I'm, I'm all over the therapy thing. You know, if therapy is, a, if it's out there, use it uh, is the point. But certainly talk to your friends and folk if you're not curious and you're not learning new things, that may be a sign that you need to change something up for your mental well-being. I definitely agree. And then like one last point, like Danny, what you said about the why thing, it made me think we were just reading about um, like quality improvement stuff. And one of the things that we were learning about um, was a technique called the five whys. And essentially you ask why five times in a row after you get your answer. And that usually kind of like helps you ground yourself in terms of like what the problem is or like what the like issue is. And then you like move on from there. And I thought that was like really interesting that you're mentioning that like we tend to tell kids to stop asking why, because I'm like, I've, I've definitely been that kid that's like consistently like, why does that happen? Okay, but like why? Right. And so um, that's brilliant. Five whys. I didn't know about that. Uh, so I, I'm stealing it. Uh, <laughs> I'll give it with proper attribution, Jay, but I'm stealing it. Just letting you know. Okay, I got that from Dr. Renee Kennedy uh, from the Nacho um, like voice series. Um, OK, great. So I'm, yeah. <laughs> again, but it's but I you know, what is it? Uh, imitation? No, theft is the sincerest form of flattery. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm stealing that. I think it's fantastic. Sounds good. Um, but yeah, um, so I guess with that said, uh, we are, it looks like we're wrapping up for today's episode. Um, again, I want to thank uh, Dr. Chris Rose for joining us. Um, and before we do, um, just like one final takeaway from today's conversation for our audience. Oh, goodness. So I guess the, the, the big thing is that for students that are students now, you are living through some incredible times. These are stories that you are going to tell your grandchildren and great-grandchildren if you're around for them. So what I'd say is, despite the immediate hardships that you're dealing with right now, try to take yourself out of it a little bit and look at it on the grand scheme of things and experience it because this is unique. If you're in college, you're in, a you're in a privileged position to be able to do that. Look and see what's been working now. Look and see what's broken down now. And this is, this is just COVID that we're talking about. I'm talking about the whole, at least in the US, 
the whole spectrum of things that have happened over the past two years. So look at this, incorporate it, be intellectually curious, try to make sense of it, and then try to pay it forward so that your kids and the generations that come after can build on what you've experienced because these have been interesting times. I'll put it that way, um, frighteningly interesting times. So that's the, for me, that's the wrap up. See it, experience it, incorporate it and build upon it. Yeah, I think for me, it's also uh, to lean into curiosity, to lean into exploration, um, but to also expand, like think outside the box. Like, you know, like sometimes our careers are disciplines, especially for students that are in college, we're very focused on our majors for obvious reasons. Um, but, you know, there, like uh, what Chris was mentioning, there are other potential intersections that your major may have that maybe haven't been explored with other disciplines. And I think that in itself creates a potential new field, potential new areas of interest. And I think that's worthwhile to look into. Take us home, Danny. <laughs> um, yeah, I think when I guess faced with like difficult times, like you can maybe take something and, and learn from it and use it to become an even stronger version of yourself. And maybe it can inform like what you're interested in studying or what you're interested in learning about. Like maybe you can see like what you can do to help make the world a better place. And I guess it's kind of cheesy, but I guess it's all you really can take away from it. Like, yeah, just one day at a time. <laughs> Yeah, my brother-in-law, who's a, a philosopher, um, um, Andre Willis, has been promulgating this thing, first quietly among friends, but then, you know, more professionally. He's a Hume scholar. I don't know who, David, I think it's David Hume. I hope I got the name right. Um, and he promulgates this thing called Deep Hope. And I think that that informs everything that kind of we're talking about, the notion, and I'm, I'm mangling it, I'm sure, but for me at least, the notion is that we're, things may be bad, things may be horrible, but you persist, you do what you can with what you've, what you've been given and move forward in whatever ways that you can. Uh, it's not that things are going to get better for you necessarily, but you're constantly looking and trying to figure out how to make things better. And that's, you know, Frank, that's evolution and that's life. So Danny, I mean, I think you, uh, you know, in the way that you said it, I think you, I think you're a deep hope advocate. And we're deeply hoping your audio eventually comes back. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but yeah, so it looks like that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Uncle Chris slash Dr. Chris Rose again for joining us today. For our audience, please stay tuned as we dive into the other dimensions of well-being for this season. It's an occupational hazard, folks. Do you flap your lips?